Well, good morning, friends. What a beautiful day. You can turn in your Bibles, uh, please, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. It's fun to see our, uh, our audience expanding that way to the neighbor's house. Uh, they're going to start serving cookies or something from over there. But it's good to see so many of you. It's good to see uh, a number of you that um, haven't been out in a while, because I assume because of COVID or what may be. Um, just a pleasure to be with you. And to consider the Word of God together, to be side by side with some others that are really interested in seeking the Lord and hearing his voice and being encouraged in their walk and refreshed and to give him the honor that he is, he is due. So uh, thank you for being here. Uh, may the Lord bless us this morning. Uh, why don't we pray together? Father, we thank you for this space. We thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you there's no airplanes right now. Lord, and uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, there are so many thoughts and opinions and ideas that uh, sort of vie for our affinity. And then to just come and to sit and to rest under truth is just so good for us. It's so restorative. It's such a blessing. And uh, Lord, we do not ever want to take it for granted. So thank you for it. Thank you for this opportunity and the freedom we enjoy in our nation. Lord, may it ever be. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 8, if I haven't already said that. Um, we're going to continue to pick up where we've left off. This is our third study in Acts chapter 8, and I believe we'll have another one uh, even as this is concluded. And you recall that Acts chapter 8, it begins with the very intense persecution of the Christian church. It's about five years or so, perhaps after Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven. And there was this outpouring of persecution that came against the church of Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem, which forced many of the Christians, most of the Christians, to flee the city for their lives. And we spent some time looking at that, considering that. We looked at a fella in particular, a man by the name of Philip, who went forth into the area of Samaria, an area that I'll remind you was not a place that the Jews frequented very often and certainly didn't like to go to. The Samaritans were what they considered half-breeds. They were a people that had compromised culturally, but perhaps more importantly, religiously. And so the Jewish, the good Jews, the pure Jews, as they may have saw themselves, didn't like the people of Samaria. And yet this is where Philip ended up. And this is where Philip began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think verse 6, if you look in your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 6, is a good summary of his ministry there. It says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. So Philip found an audience there in Samaria, a receptive audience there. Now, we didn't go much further than that last week. That's pretty close to where we stopped our study. And we took notice of the fact that there in the verse it says that they paid attention, verse 6, they paid attention to Philip. That word there, it means full and undivided attention. I mean, these guys were dialed in. They were listening, much like our crowd is here this morning. But it didn't go on to explain, at least when we were together, whether they really bought into it. 
Did they respond? Did they believe? Did they say, yes, I'm in? What do I need to do? And for that, we picked up and look at verse 9. It says, now there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles, he was amazed. Now, as always, when you see the word but beginning a particular paragraph, as verse 9 begins that particular paragraph, it should give us a little bit of pause as we continue. Everything is moving along nicely, but it says there in 8, or close to verse 8, it says there was much joy in the city, but we come to in the next word, but there was this guy named Simon. Now, Simon was something of a local celebrity in Samaria. He had a fair degree, if you will, of fame there in that little community. And the people of that community honored Simon as one who, noticed not only had the power of God, but look at verse 10, they saw him as a man that was the power of God. They said, this man is the great power of God. Notice also verse 9 points out that not only did they proclaim him to be somebody great, but notice what verse 9 says, he proclaimed himself to be somebody great. You love those people, don't you? That are pretty confident that they are God's gift uh, to humanity. And the juxtaposition here of Philip and Simon, I think is by design, at least by the Holy Spirit, if not specifically by the author, Luke. Because we learned a moment ago, Simon proclaimed himself, Philip proclaimed Jesus Christ. Simon proclaimed himself to be something great. Philip proclaimed Jesus Christ to be great. And the reason both Simon and the others thought that he was something great, Luke points out for us in verse 9 there, because he practiced magic in the city. And it says he amazed the people of Samaria. And perhaps this is the reason that God caused Philip's preaching to be accompanied by various signs and wonders in Samaria so that it might counter the influence of this guy, Simon, and his either real or supposed signs and wonders. Perhaps it was God's design that the people there in Samaria could see true signs and wonders. The text doesn't necessarily say, but it says that Simon practiced magic. Now, we think of magic, many of us, we think of a guy in a, a long black jacket, top hat, a bunny, you know, these kinds of things. He's going to do some tricks, maybe some balloons involved, and the kids are going to be, uh, enjoy the, pro the process. The word that is used there in the, our scriptures is the word sorcery. Our modern versions translate that to magic. Sorcery in the scriptures is always associ associated with the occult. And it's oftentimes coupled with either a mind or a mood altering drug or activity some hypnotic type of activity that drew the practitioner and his or her audience into the deception. Now, please note, I'm not saying 
that all magicians that we, you know, we, we go to at little kids' parties or whatever and we see, that all magicians are tapped into the occult. Much of what we see, what we call magic in our day, are really illusions. They're sleight of hand. They're designed to trick somebody into thinking they're seeing something that they're not, and they're meant to be entertaining. I know our buddy Art here, he does magic with the children and things like that, and he'll often refer to it not as magic, but as illusions by design. That's not what's going on with our friend Simon. He is not merely doing illusions, sleight of hand, but he's tapping into something. The power, perhaps, of the occult or of Satan. And that's what was amazing the people. That's what led them to say, man, this man is not just, uh, he doesn't just have power from God, he is the power of God. Now, whether he was solely empowered by Satan or he simply, uh, or he added to that sort of the skills or the art of illusion, the text doesn't really come out and say. I imagine it was a combination of both of those two things. But through it, he wowed the people with his wonders, causing them to conclude that God was empowering him or that he himself was the power of God. And now here comes Philip. Philip comes down into the city of Samaria, begins to preach. God enables him. He empowers him, gives him the faith even to step out in that faith. And signs and wonders are occurring. People are being healed. The power of God is demonstrated by this man, Philip. And the people in that community are immediately noticing there's something different, different between Simon and his power and this fellow Philip and the power that he is demonstrating. And that, coupled with the message that Philip is preaching, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it draws the people in. Look down at verse 12. It says, but when, but when. So they believe Simon, but when they heard Philip, when they saw Philip, when they observed Philip, they knew something was different. It says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women among them. When they heard the truth, they began to turn away, or they did turn away from the false. And they proclaimed the reality of their new belief as it says there, by being baptized. Again, a public declaration of the work that God has done in their lives. They believed and they were baptized. Notice verse 13, this becomes interesting and this sort of leads to a little bit of controversy in the commentaries as to what is actually going on here. Verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, on the surface, that sounds great. Wow. Even Simon believed. Even a guy that had been seemingly used by the devil was converted and believed. On the surface, it sounds wonderful. But if you notice there at the end of verse 13, what really seems to be drawing Simon, the magician, in are the signs and the great miracles. Notice it says, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. There was a clear distinction in Simon's mind between what Philip was doing and what he was doing. And even though he had the ability to do some of these sorts of things, this clear distinction drew his attention. It captured him. He was amazed by it himself, maybe for the first time, in his life, Simon saw a power 
that really did what it seemed to be doing. Perhaps all the tricks and things like that that he had been doing, what we again might call sleight of hand, illusions, that had been fooling the people, now suddenly Simon is seeing the real thing. Simon is drawn in. Now folks ask the question, was this guy Simon truly saved? That is, did he truly place his faith in the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins? And if we stop right where we have stopped now, right around verse 13, we might say, well, of course he did. The text says he believed. The text says that he was baptized. But we remind ourselves it is possible to believe something with our mind, but not truly believe it in the deep places of our hearts. One example of that in James chapter 3, we discover that even the demons believe in the one true God. And certainly that is not meant to imply that the demons are in right relationship with God. So there's a head knowledge, but not a proper heart knowledge. Now we also know that a person can be baptized or they can participate in any other sacramental ordinance. They can take communion or any of the other sacraments that man has created. And we also know a person can do those things and not truly be saved as well. Because what saves a person is an unreserved trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only means by which their sins can be forgiven. I don't know if we, can, if we have any ability to truly say one way or the other whether or not Simon was or wasn't saved. And as I said, the commentators, they sort of argue about this. And the reason why they do is because of the next little story that we're going to read in a few moments. Here's one thing I'll point out, sort of to support the argument that, yes, Simon was saved. The same word that is used to describe what happened among the Samaritans is the word believed, and then it says that they were baptized. Those exact same words, particularly the word believed, is the word that is used of Simon himself. And so if the word means that the Samaritans were saved, then it should have the same meaning that Simon himself was saved. I'll remind you that the Greek language is a very beautiful language with lots of different words to really say what a person means to say. Again, the, the classic example, in the English language, we say, I love my wife, I love pizza, I love this great weather, and we mean something very different when we say those three different things. Well, the Greek language is a beautiful language. And so the author can really say what he wants to say. And Luke, the author, uses the same word when describing the Samaritans as he does describe what's going on within Simon when he says that Simon believed. And so I think there's certainly a strong argument speaking to the reality that Simon did indeed trust and believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, if you haven't read ahead, you might be like, well, why would we even question this? Well, because the next passage goes on. And this is what divides commentators as to whether Simon's conversion was genuine or not. It starts, and we're going to skip down. Go down to verse 18 for a moment. We're going to come back to 14. But down to verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands 
may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He says in verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said will come upon me. Now, I'll say this, if we didn't have verses 18 to 24, then I don't think there would be any reason to doubt that what occurred to Simon back in verses 9 through 13 was a real conversion experience in his life. The problem is we do have verses 18 to 24, where he attempts to purchase the power to lay hands upon a person and convey unto them the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 19, give me this power also. Now, there's a lot to consider here. First, I'm going to go back to verses 14 to 17. I didn't skip them on purpose. I'll go back to them. I just want to keep sort of the train of thought looking at this guy, Simon. There's some very important information in verses 14 to 17 for us to consider. Whenever I hear airplanes, I'm reminded after 9-11, you guys, some of you that are, uh, you know, not real young, um, no flights flew for three days. You remember that? And I remember it was like Friday, the flight started up again, and I heard an airplane in the sky again. And I was reminded, praise the Lord. You know, we're kind of at a place of peace and safety again. So praise the Lord. The planes are flying, and we are delighted. So the first thing, I'm going to go back to verses 14 to 17. Here we are now. Uh, my second point that I, I want to draw real quickly is, notice that Simon is seeking to buy a particular ministry or a particular gift. There's actually a name for this in church history. It's called simony or simony. And it's named after this fellow by the name of Simon. And the meaning of it is when a person attempts to purchase a position within the church. Simony is making business out of that which is sacred. It's the word for the sin of buying or selling a church office or privilege, or it could even be expanded out in the days when people used to buy indulgences for their sins, pardons, essentially, for their sins. You'd come in on a Friday, you'd put some cash down, you can live it up on the weekend. These are the ideas that are uh, under this word simony here. And it's all named after this particular fellow. So if you're familiar with the word, now you know the origin of the word. Simon here, he offers money to purchase the power to disseminate the spirit on whoever he chooses to lay hands upon that particular person. There's some errors, obviously, in his thinking. Number one, he thinks that the Holy Spirit is a mere power that can be bought or sold. And so instead of regarding the Holy Spirit as the person that he is, he sees the Holy Spirit as a power that he could use as he wanted. The Holy Spirit is not a power. The scripture doesn't uh, depict him as such. He's a person. And so he's certainly not a power that we can purchase a greater possession of. As a matter of fact, the scripture makes it very clear. It's not about us. 
having real possession of the Holy Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit having possession of us, that he might be able to work in us and through us. Simon here, he wants to control the working of the Spirit. No doubt, I think it's fair for us to conclude, no doubt with the intention that he might continue to be someone great among the people of Samaria. He was impressed. He saw the visible effects. The text doesn't tell us what they were, but it makes it clear that there were some visible effects when the Holy Spirit came upon these particular people. And so Simon, he tries to buy the ability to do what it was that the apostles could do. What's the secret? Interesting, a lot of magicians will do that. Illusionists today, even in our day, they'll do that. The, someone will come up with a, a trick, an illusion, and some other magician on the other side of town or the other side of the nation will give them money, teach me how to do this trick so I can use it in my show too. It almost seems like that's what Simon is doing here. Teach me how to pray for the folks so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. Imagine the power and the influence that Simon could have over the region if he was able to do that. Then he would really be somebody great, as it said, as he thought of himself back in verse 9. And so he's desiring spiritual power for personal gain. It's always a mistake. He's desiring spiritual power for personal gain so that he could use that power to gather disciples around himself. And you'll notice here, Peter's having none of it. I read it already, but verse 20, Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Hey, the J.B. Phillips translation, I, I've quoted that a few times to you of late, translates it this way, where we have in our versions, may your money perish with you. It translates it this way, to hell with you and your money. I'm not even sure we should be speaking that way. And yet that's essentially what Peter said to this man, Simon. May your money perish with you, to hell with you and your money. I certainly don't think we should talk like that on a, a normal basis, unless that's literally what you wanna say, which I think is what Peter was trying to communicate. Because Peter knew that such a practice and such a doctrine would greatly go on to hinder the work of God in that region there of Samaria. Simon was so wrong that he needed a strong rebuke, both for himself and also for those that were observing and watching what was going on here. And so Peter makes a very strong statement, a very strong rebuke, rebuke that no doubt must have been difficult and awkward for him and all those that were kind of sitting about there. It's kind of hard to even read, especially when we look at someone like J.B. Phillips' translation. Yet, Peter was willing to tell Simon the truth. Even though it would be hard for Simon to hear that particular message, even though those standing by might be like, well, these people are mean, or whatever it might be, Peter knew that that community, and Simon in particular, needed to hear the truth. And he presented it to him. Now imagine, Simon, brand new believer. A lot of us, we might, well, he's a new believer. Give him, give him a little slack, something like that. Simon knows it needs to be called out and it needs to be dealt with. When I was a brand new believer, first studying the word with a group of people and things like that, I was a little small Bible study in someone's dorm room. And we were studying the book of Daniel. 
the book of Daniel, it begins and it talks about how Daniel was this remarkable individual and, you know, all these things, a man of integrity and so on and so forth. And so the person leading the study sort of asked a question about these things and the conversation meandered a bit. And I, I made the statement, I said, well, Daniel is the author of this book, correct? And yeah, I said, well, maybe he's sort of embellishing a little bit how great of a guy he is, you know, because he's the writer and he's talking about how wonderful he is. And the leader looked at me and rebuked me, scolded me. I believe the word, they said, and the word of God is God's truth. And I, I do too. I'm sorry. I'll never say another thing in Bible study. But I, I needed to be rebuked. It was good for me. It kind of hurt a little. But it was good for me to hear that truth. Peter rebuked Simon, even as a brand new believer. He says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart, he says, is not right with the Lord. Now, how could Peter know somebody else's heart condition? Well, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, led by God, was able to speak truth into the circumstance. He knew full well, Peter knew full well this, that the Spirit hadn't fallen upon these men because of something that Peter and John had done. And notice, he'll say that there. That's what Simon thought. That Peter and John did something, they said the magic words, and now these people have the Holy Spirit. Peter knew, in verse 20, you see there, he said, you try to buy the gift of God with money. This isn't about me. This isn't about something I've done. This isn't about some power that I have that I can kind of go around. This is the gift of God, and you want to buy that with money? It's, if it's a gift of God, then you can't purchase it. No, it's no longer a gift if you do. So again, we come back to that question, is Simon truly saved as a result of his interaction with Philip? Well, I'll say this. His interaction here with Peter and John certainly calls us a bit of pause. Remember I said earlier, if we didn't have these verses 18 to 24, we would have no reason to doubt Simon's conversion. But these verses certainly give us pause. And I think we can agree, we can certainly draw this conclusion Simon certainly isn't going in the right direction if he is a believer in his walk with the Lord. He's going down a dangerous, dangerous path. And so despite all of the outward evidence that this man became a Christian, he professed faith, he practiced the ordinances of the faith, he got baptized, he's gathering with the saints, he goes to church regularly, these things. Despite all of that evidence, it's quite possible that Simon is still very much lost in his sins. And I think that should be a warning for every one of us that have gathered here this morning. That just because you are here this morning attending a service, and just because somewhere, sometime perhaps, you made a profession of faith of some sorts in Jesus, and just because maybe you have participated in some of the ordinance of, of the faith, you've been baptized, you celebrated communion, or things like that. None of those things necessarily mean that you are in right relationship with God. And so when you come to the end of your days, and you come into the presence of the Lord himself, he's not going to ask you how many church services you attended. And he's not going to ask you whether or not you were baptized and whether it was when you were a kid or as an adult or you did both or whatever it might be. He's not going to ask you whether you publicly stood somewhere or raised your hand professing to be a Christian. What he will ask of you is what have you done with the gift 
of the sacrifice of my son? Did you receive that work and apply it to your life? And so just because we have this text here before us, let me just in the middle of our time here together, may I exhort each one of us that are gathered here today, make sure you are in right relationship with God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Peter here, he strongly rebukes Simon for his er error. But there's a very important set of verses, verse 22 and verse 23. Notice how Peter continues. It's so important. Peter goes on, he rebuked him strongly. May your money perish with you. You have no part, no parcel in the work of God. Then he says in verse 22, repent. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray, he says, to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. It's so important for us to see these closing words of Peter. Were his previous words harsh? Yes, they were. But they were not presented without hope. Again, notice Peter's rebuke of Simon doesn't end with a pronouncement of an anathema, a curse, an eternal curse. But rather, it ends with an invitation to repent and to be forgiven. Is the word of God sometimes hard to hear? It is. It's hard to hear that the way we're living our lives is sinful and outside of the will of God. It's hard to hear that the consequences of our rebellion is leading us to the place of judgment. It's hard for us to consider that what our culture, especially this month, celebrates and flaunts and prides itself in will actually result in the leading of many to death and judgment. Those things are hard to hear. But the word of God is never without hope. And I hope that's the, the main takeaway from our time together today. The, the opportunity to repent, the opportunity to be forgiven is always extended even to a guy like Simon that was so off the mark in his understanding of the working of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that he needed to be strongly and publicly rebuked in the way that he was. And so that look here, if the word of God is bringing conviction in your life, maybe even this morning, if the word of God is bringing conviction in your life, praise the Lord for that. Because that's what it is supposed to do. But please, don't turn from the conviction. Acknowledge the conviction. Embrace the conviction. And allow, and allow it to lead you to the place of repentance. For that's what the word of God is also designed to do that you might experience the washing and the cleansing and the forgiveness of your sin as a result of the work of Jesus Christ, freely offered to every one of us. Peter says to him, Simon, repent and pray to the Lord. I want you to notice how Simon responds. Luke, the author of the book, he tells us Simon answers Peter, this is in verse 24, by saying, pray to me, uh, pray for me, to the Lord, he says. And then he adds that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, I don't typically like to critique the prayers of other people, but I will say this, Simon's not really praying. 
he's talking to Peter. Simon, notice also, he doesn't express any concern for his sin being sin, but he expresses concern about the consequences of his sin. That leaves us with the impression that if there were no consequences, that Simon wouldn't be bothered about his sin to begin with. Simon isn't so much interested in having his life corrected as he doesn't want to be held accountable for the direction his life is going. And the second thing is, Simon told him, pray to the Lord, ask him to forgive you. And instead, Simon goes to Peter. Now, it seems very noble. It seems to exhibit a level of humility. Would you pray for me? But the reality is, there's a mark of disobedience in his decision to go to Peter and not to God directly, as Peter instructed. By going to Peter, he's refusing to do what he was told he should do. And instead, he asked Peter to do what he was told to do. Peter could not repent for Simon. Simon would have to do that for himself. The only one that can repent of your sin is you. I'm the only one that can repent of my sin. Simon is the only one that can repent of his sin. Our mother and our father can't repent of our sin. Our spouse can't repent of your sin. A pastor or a priest or some other religious figure can't repent of your sin. It's you and you alone. You and you alone are the only one that is able to humble yourself, acknowledge the wrong that you have done, and seek God to forgive you for your sin. But Simon's reply, again, is to ask Peter to go to God on his behalf. I think we could say that Simon was the forerunner of those, even within Christianity, who would rather go to a human mediator than directly unto the Lord. Those that will pray to saints and ask them to go to the Father on their behalf. Jesus invites us directly to him. The book of Timothy says this, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. The scripture is clear. We are to go directly to God through Jesus Christ. He earned us access to enter in boldly into the Father's presence. And because, again, when we do, we find that is the place of forgiveness. Simon says to him, there's an opportunity to repent, but you need to do it. Sadly, Simon goes to Peter instead, and it doesn't say anything more about that. Now, I want to go back to verses 14 to 17. I skipped over them. I don't like to skip over passages. Certainly, we don't do it. Because it kind of, it, it almost, uh, it gives the impression we're trying to hide something or something like that. But I wanted to keep sort of a flow looking at the man Simon. Now in the passage, it starts with Philip talking to Simon. It concludes with Peter talking to Simon. And when the story began, or what we've been looking at, Peter wasn't even there. So how does Peter get down there? What, what brings him? Verse 14 tells us, we'll start there. Now when the apostles of, at Jerusalem... <coughs> When they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
for as of yet he had not fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is another passage that commentators are like, well, I think this, and others think, well, I think that. Well-meaning people that look at a tricky passage of Scripture, and so we'll do our best with it today. Now, the scenario, again, that we have is this. We have a group of people. It tells us the Samaritans. Verse 12 says that have come to believe, and verse 12 goes on to say, and were baptized. What we learn, however, in verse 15 is that upon belief, they had not received the Holy Spirit as of yet. Luke tells us that there in the passage that we read. And so the remedy was for Philip or some of the others to send note back to Jerusalem and have the apostles come down from Jerusalem to Samaria to pray and lay hands on these believers that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And remember, that's what Simon took notice of and wanted to buy the power to be able to do for himself. Now the fact that these Christians receive the Holy Spirit in what seems to be a subsequent experience to their salvation, that's what has caused some debate among Christian scholars and others. So there are some that'll say this, that these folks were never truly converted under Philip's preaching. And it wasn't until Peter and John came down perhaps explain things a little more clearly that they were truly converted and thus received the Holy Spirit upon believing. Others will say that the Samaritans were indeed born again, converted under Philip's preaching, but that what happened through the ministry of Peter and John was a subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit that should be sought by every one of us as believers. Some people think that. And then there are others that suggest that these Samaritans were converted in response to Philip's preaching, and yet God, in a unique move, withheld the gift of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John could come and bestow it upon them, and that the reason that God did so is he, he was trying to accomplish something a little bit larger, which I'll come back to in a moment. So people are all over the board on some of these ideas here as to where these Samaritans are. Number of questions that are raised for me as I look at this passage. Number one, why didn't these believers receive the Holy Spirit upon belief? As is typically the case, was the case for you and for I ever since the day of Pentecost. Second question, is it, is the fact that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit somehow related to the fact that Philip ministered to them and that he was a non-apostle and only the apostles could convey the Holy Spirit. Perhaps. Praise the Lord. We're at peace. A third question is this. Is this situation unique to the book of Acts? That some people could believe and not receive the Holy Spirit until a latter time. Or does that continue into our age and could that be some of our experiences or other people around the world? Well, let me just quote G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorites. In response to this passage of scripture, G. Campbell Morgan asked the question. He says, how was it that these people did not receive the spirit immediately upon their belief? I have no answer. And so if Morgan 
recognizes the difficulty of this passage, then I don't feel so bad. And you shouldn't either. The difficulty is that the experience of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in our day is to receive him upon belief. The down payment of heaven, it says, or the, uh, the earnest of heaven, it says in one of the versions. And so one possibility is that these individuals were not yet believers. That doesn't seem congruent to me with the rest of the passage, particularly the terms that are used. And so then, if they were believers, again, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit upon believing? In answer to that, some have suggested that we're talking about a different experience. They received the Holy Spirit into their lives, but sort of this Pentecost experience where he empowered them to be able to speak in tongues or whatever it might have been, that that was subsequent. Some are suggesting that that is what is going on. That very well may be. And so we come back again, and I, I know I'm just raising questions. You're probably thinking, oh, then why are we here? I could do the reading myself. But I'm raising the questions because it's a difficult passage for us to consider. Whether we're talking about an initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit or a subsequent coming upon is not real clear to us in the words that are used. So we go back to the question, well, maybe this has to do with it's something that only the apostles could do. I don't think so. And the reason why I don't is because in the very next chapter, which will probably take us two, three weeks to get to, but in the very next chapter, we see there's a man by the name of Ananias who doesn't have any position in the church. He's not an apostle. He's not a deacon. He's just referred to as a disciple. He's referred to as a believer, a guy that attends the church, who's told to go and pray for a new convert that he might receive the Holy Spirit, which he does. And so it can't be that, well, the reason why the people in Samaria didn't receive the Holy Spirit is because the apostles weren't there, because they weren't there in the next chapter when that guy received the Holy Spirit. And so it can't be that scenario here. Here's one thing that I will say. Sometimes in our study of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit doesn't fit very nicely inside of our theological boxes. And everything doesn't work out perfectly the way that we have formulated our thinking of how he is supposed to work. There are sometimes things that the Holy Spirit is doing within the book of Acts that in our day and age might make us a little bit uncomfortable. And I don't know if that's the way it should be. I'm gonna have to have a talk with the Holy Spirit about that. This may be one of those instances where he's doing something there that he doesn't continue to do in our particular day. It's very possible that the answer to this whole scenario is that God knew that there was a potential conflict that would occur had Peter and John and the apostles not been involved with the birth of this new church. I'll remind you of this. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. Remember we spent all of our time considering that last week together. Not friends at all. You people are half-breeds, you dirty, no good Samaritans, but you people, you Jews, you know, this whole back and forth that was going on that had lasted for hundreds of years. There was a divide. Remember Jesus' disciples. Can we call down fire to destroy them? Would that be okay for us to do? We can't pass through Samaria. We got to go all the way around Samaria because of those people that are there. There was a great divide amongst the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. 
perhaps the best answer to what is going on here is that it was intended to give expression to the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Whether that was made up of Jewish Christians or Samaritan Christians or later on Gentile Christians. And that by sending the apostles to pray for these Samaritans, what God was doing was identifying this new church in Samaria with the work that was going on in Jerusalem. And in doing so, avoiding the possibility that two churches would form, a Samaritan church and a Jewish church, a Samaritan church and a Jerusalem church. So imagine the two different scenarios that could have conceivably developed. In the first one, the Spirit fell immediately on these Samaritan believers when they received the word. And then in the second scenario, the event we have, where the Holy Spirit did not fall immediately. How easy it would have been for the strife that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans to continue into the church as well. If there was no visible linkage between the Jerusalem church and the Samaritan church. The possibility of two separate and distinct churches forming would have been very, very real and almost likely. But when the apostles, represented by John and Peter, when they come from Jerusalem and they identify themselves with the believing Samaritans and they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit just as they themselves received the Holy Spirit, it now becomes very clear that the work that God was doing in Samaria was one and the same with the work that he was doing in Jerusalem. So these are not two separate works among two different people groups, but rather it's the one work among one new people group, the church. And so by delaying the Samaritans receiving of the Holy Spirit, God is making a very, very clear statement. There's one body which consists of Jews in Judea and Samaritans in Samaria and later, as we'll see, Gentiles in the uttermost parts of the earth. One body united by one common head, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember back in the Gospels, when the Lord gave to Peter and the other apostles what Jesus referred to as the keys to the kingdom. I'll read it to you. It's Matthew 18. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think we can apply that to what's going on here in Acts chapter 8. We might say that Peter and John are unlocking the doors to the church and they're swinging the doors wide open so that even the Samaritans might enter in. When we get to Acts chapter 10, probably in a month or two, when we get there, what we will see is God will use Peter to introduce the Gentile people into the fellowship of the saints as well. And so through their actions, Peter and John officially welcome those who had previously been excluded. They officially welcome them as members of the people of God, that is the Samaritans, into the kingdom of God. And I think that's pretty wise on the part of our Lord, if that is indeed what is going on here. Would you agree? That's where we're going to stop. But what do we, what do we get from this? Here's a couple of things. God's wisdom 
is so much more superior to our wisdom. Amen? And the second, second thing is this. No matter our sin, no matter how dastardly the deed that we may have done, perhaps even in a very, very public setting, the word of God is always presented with the hope that if you repent, that he will forgive. And so wherever you are with Jesus right now, please be reminded of that reality. If you repent, he'll forgive you, he'll wash you, and he'll cleanse you. And that's good news indeed, amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity and the desire to wrestle with passages like this. Lord, to even have uh, an inkling of interest in these things is a testimony of a changing work that you're doing within each one of us. And we delight in that wonderful truth and that reality. Father, we ask that you would continue to open up your word to our hearts. Continue to give us a greater understanding of your truth that we might walk in your truth. Continue to use our lives to extol you, to lift you up, that others might be drawn to you. And Lord, may you use in our lives, may you cause it to fulfill the scripture that if the Son of Man is lifted up, all will be drawn unto him. May our lives do that. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.